Hello and welcome back to the Beta Sandwich Science Podcast, your source for news and trends in the molecular biosciences. This is episode number 76 for the week of February 8th, 2015. Yay! On this week's show, we're going to figure out if you can fix peanut allergies with yogurt. We're going to talk about just what's in all those supplements you're buying. Measles, measles everywhere. Yay! Sort of. Probably not. (laughs) And, uh... The bot fly. That is literally all I have here. Christian's going to talk about that. I, um, uh, I'm assuming wow. it's some sort of hybrid robot uh, killing implement drone, but uh, it may Honestly, actually... you you would wish it is. <laughs> wish it <laughs> that, is. Would be, that would be better than what it is. <laughs> so uh, the lovely voice you're hearing there, of course, is Christian Copley-Salem. Christian is a graduate student in cell molecular pharmacology at the University of Nevada School of Medicine. Yay. Yay. Carolina Balkin Bush, our registered diet. I'm going to sing your name every time. <laughs> Balkin Bush, she's a registered dietitian in Las Vegas, Nevada. How are you, Carolina? Doing great. <laughs> you set a precedent. You're going to have to sing the whole your whole segment. Oh no! Rhyme and meter. Let's <laughs> you guys do don't it. Want that. <laughs> And uh, I am Scott Barnett. I am also a, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Nevada School of Medicine in pharmacology. So that is my story. I'm sticking to it. How's everyone been? Let's do our little roundup. We don't get to talk that often. Anything fun this week? Is is Las Vegas? Uh, did you guys get any rain? Is it miserable down there? Is it normal? We got a few drops yesterday, but it's like 77 degrees out. It's absolutely amazing. Oh my god! Las Vegas is weird, which is. Uh, it's 99.9% of the time it's it's the surface of Mars and then like out of the blue you guys will get like a thunderstorm and and like the walking down the strip you'll be like like knee deep in water mm-hmm yeah it's <laughs> pretty awesome yep yeah we get flash flooding from like half an hour of rain <laughs> it, and oh just, my gosh. yeah I'll just yeah because you guys are like at the bottom of like a dish it's like a funnel down to you guys right yeah yep pretty much. And I've heard it hasn't been really a great winter for you guys up in Reno. Not oh, it's a whole been lot of snow horrible. lately. Well, I think it snowed a bunch in the hills this weekend, but it's uh, it's it's been it's been crappy and warm. And and if you're the fan of the the skiing, yes, the skiing, um, oh then uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying anymore. If you're a fan of skiing, this was this is a dreadful winter for you up in Tahoe. So yeah, go team! Yeah, woohoo! Awesome. What, Christian? Yes. Wait, did you do something, Carolina? I feel like I... I... I didn't do much. We actually, we have a friend visiting from Reno and staying with us for the next two weeks. He's taking the the bar exam down here in a little bit. So um, I'm hiding all my food. This, yeah, this... this <laughs> I'm just... a little psychoprotective about my food. I'm Maybe I'm a curmudgeon, but uh, I cannot think of... There's not a person on the planet with the exception of like, um, I don't know, like... Uh, um, What's her name from? Uh, ah, I'm totally in love with her. Um, <laughs> the girl from <laughs> Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, Jeez, okay. would this would have worked a lot better if I could have just <laughs> puked that out. With the exception of Scarlett Johansson and a few other people, and my wife, of course, there are there's pretty much not a person on the planet, including my closest and dearest family members, that I'd want to stay with me for two weeks. So you're a saint. For letting anyone <laughs> sleep in your guest bedroom, i.e. slash couch, whatever it happens to be for two weeks. Because I'd be like, get out. It'll it'll be a good growing opportunity for me because I think at this point, if I were to have kids, I would be like the least nurturing mother ever. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't want to share anything. I, I mean, I barely share food with my husband. I feel like <laughs> I serve him a third of the portion of whatever I cook. Uh, <laughs> it's not very nice. Yes, I know. Well, Dharma, like she used to always eat horribly. Like she just didn't care what she ate. And I love making dinner and food and stuff. And and while she likes it, she doesn't. I I along with you, I don't feel she appreciates it. I'm sure you put really, you put really good health decisions into your food about how you pair stuff. I put in my mind really good taste decisions together. <laughs> but yet she's always like, oh yeah, it's good. I'm like, I had a sous vide that for two days. And I'm like, you don't get as much because you don't appreciate it. So. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Christian, but, yeah. Oh no, 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 go ahead. No, no, I was going to ask Christian how his how his week was. I, it was good, but I didn't really do anything noteworthy. It was all just sort of work and. Well, you're a busy bee right now. Yeah, I'm a busy bee all the time, but it's just not story worthy at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're writing your qualifier. You're writing a paper. You're doing a podcast. And um, 
Oh my gosh, I'm writing something else. Oh, I'm supposed to write up a thing for one of the undergrads that we have. And that's going to be an adventure. So we, uh, um, I think we've talked about this in the past, but your qualifier is the midway point through your PhD. It, it's basically, um, you write a large grant and it's an accumulation of all your knowledge and you put it into this massive grant and you submit that to your committee. Then they grill you about it for a couple hours, ask you all the questions you don't know the answer to to see how you deal with that. And uh, hopefully your answers are adequate. And then they say you can continue on. Um, more than one person has taken their qualifier and been thanked for their time and uh, been sent on their way. Um, of course, that won't happen to Christian, but it's, uh, it's a very stressful thing, uh, for even for the most confident of individuals. And uh, most people who take their qualifier and have graduated say that the qualifier was significantly more stressful than actually defending their dissertation. So yeah. he's got that, and he's writing a first-person author paper. So Christian's very busy. Dude, that's absolutely yeah. noteworthy. Yeah, I guess. It's just it's, it's one of those things that's just sort of blown my brain out. So Yeah. So if I were to ask mm-hmm. you what you do for fun— uh, right now, I don't. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah, I play guitar, but that's always happening. I don't know. Good <laughs> <Just> like, Excellent. <laughs> Speaking of being a, a busy bee, did I tell you what my dad did to me as a child with that? Oh, God, do I want to know? <laughs> I'm still angry about it to this day. My father's a great individual, love him to death. But when I was a child, this is the less politically correct time. This is the early 80s. I was a part of something in Southern California called um, Indian Guides, uh, which would be Native American Guides now. But I'm not even sure if the organization's still around, at least in it's the form I took it in. It's not. And you'd basically, it was more of an homage to Native Americans. It was nothing negative. You would get together and you would do arts and crafts and punch stuff into leather and do beads and hair headdresses and all this sort of stuff here. Uh, you'd go camping and teepees and all this sort of stuff. Great fun as a child. But one of the things that the, kind of the, the, the big moments of little or of, uh, of Indian guides was to get your Indian name and, Little like my friends were like I had one who was running bull. I had one who was like uh, like a giant bear, a soaring eagle. These are the common names you would get. So do you know what name my dad gave me? Oh no! Keep in mind with soaring eagle sitting next to me, I was little working bumblebee. Oh my god! <laughs> little working bumblebee. Who does that? It was mortifying and like. And you had this like leather like circle cut out that's like I don't know about the size of a coffee cup stamp, and you'd like have to like you know you, you have those leather tools you'd have to like make your little logo so someone do a soaring eagle and then write your name around it. And I everywhere I went I had little beads <laughs> hanging off it, and it, there was a bumblebee with a stinger, and it said little working bumblebee. So I'm still I'm still upset to this day about that. <laughs> are you still are you living out that prophecy? Uh, I, yeah, right. Maybe that was the the, the joke. Um, what so, about Soaring Eagle? I wonder how his life turned out. Yeah, like he's like a like a, a like pilot a, or, or a pilot. Oh, I was gonna go the opposite. Like he's like a, a druggie who like can't get his life together. But uh, I, yours is much more flying optimistic. High. <laughs> You're flying high. <laughs> my goodness. Oh. So, anyways, that was my childhood. <laughs> yeah. We also installed. This is how interesting my life is. We installed one of these cat doors in the window that lets one of our cats out based on the little RFID tag in their neck, lets it in or out at will. And then our fat cat, who's not supposed to go outside, ironically, he should be the one going outside because he's overweight. Uh, he He's not allowed to go out. So that was a fun thing to install there. And uh, I, the funny thing is the cat door so small, I think the fat cat is too fat to use it even if he wanted which is depressing. Aww. Now, this is not some great morbidly obese cat. He is overweight, but he's a big cat by breed. He's a Maine Coon, and these are large cats. He's like 20 pounds. Um, there are much, much fatter cats out there. We're not abusing the cat. But he, um, anyway, so that was fun. Although she won't really, like, she hasn't quite figured it out yet. Like, you have to, like, ram her through the door like a, like a, <laughs> like a baby being born into the environment. You have to, like, push her through it. And I think it's just traumatizing her. I don't know, like, the right way to train her. <laughs> So, oh, kitty. Yeah, kitty. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, oh, wish I had cats. We have we have so many coyotes around here. If we had cats, they'd get eaten up. 
Mm. Yeah, we have coyotes out here too. It's not too bad. She's pretty wily. I mean, the, one of the things, if you have an outdoor cat, you you kind of have to accept the fact that it might just not come home one day. You know, we've had her for, you know, I think, what, about three years now? And, of course, everything's fine, and we certainly don't want the, – the, the compromise is that you're like, why would you put her out there with all these dangerous animals? A, she's done fine, and B, she's just one of those cats that she's absolutely – unbelievably miserable when she's inside you know what i mean she would rather be out in the world and risk it than be stuck inside she loses her mind and Mm -hmm. she tortures the other animals eventually which is (laughs) she gets so bored she'll just like start jumping off a high furniture and like tackling the other animals like (laughs) scaring the crap out of them so it's oh yep fair enough i sound like a bad owner now i'm like well i got one cat i'm feeding i'm basically like like i'm making foie gras of his liver by overfeeding him and i got another cat that is i'm sending out to be killed by coyotes uh don't don't feel bad my my good friends have have a really really overweight cat named him asparagus of all things (laughs) (laughs) but they tried to put him on a diet once and uh when he lost weight he actually developed some liver issues Oh, so yeah? they had, yeah, they had to put the weight back on him. He's much it, happier. It yeah, would be almost imp- it would be a monumental effort to get our one cat to lose weight because we feed both the cats at the same time, and he like he is really food motivated, and like he'll just if he's hungry, he'll just push the other cat out of the way and just take her food. So unless you want to sit there the whole time and watch them both and make sure that they you know don't do it. You're, there's nothing you can do. He's just going to eat it all. So yeah, God, that sounds like my relationship with Colby. It's terrible. <laughs> you get you get a third of the food. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're done. <laughs> Cut me off. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, banter complete. Check yes. in the box. Can we just like make that the cat chapter? <laughs> so yeah. Just skip through. <laughs> <sighs> Science Blast. Science Blast. Boop. Ha. <laughs> Do re mi. Okay. So much to Uh-oh. talk about. Um, since I Scott, since I have two Scott. stories, I'll go. I'll do. I'll do. I'll do one. I'll, I'll bookend the show with my stories here. Okay, so the first one out of the gate is dealing with supplements. Um, you'll see there's basically touted as cure-alls for a bunch of stuff. Um, it, a lot of it's total BS, but I won't blanket cover all of them and to say they're all BS because they are, in fact, complex chemicals from plants, and I'm sure a lot of them do some effect on the body. Generally, it's not what the manufacturer claims. It's... they. And even if it does do something, it's normally greatly exaggerated by the manufacturer or at least the people who take it. So so this is not a judgment on supplements out of the gate, so to speak, but it is uh, be cautious. So um, regardless of what you think, though, uh, you know, I used to say irregardless a lot, but that's not a word. Did you guys know that? Uh, I did. (laughs) For years, I thought it sounded much better, more, you know, erudite. I'd be like, um, ooh, yes, irregardless. And then. I found out one day that it's not a word because it's like a double negative, ear and regardless. It doesn't make any sense. You just say regardless. I didn't know that. What are we talking about? Supplements? <laughs> regardless of what you think about the efficacy of, of the supplements, um, they can't work if they're not getting inside of you. And what do I mean by that? So the New York attorney, if you haven't seen the story yet, he obtained a bunch of store brand supplements from like GNC, Target, Walgreens, Walmart, and these were the store brand ones. So the the store branded would be like GNC, Ginkgo Biloba, or whatever. And they did DNA testing on the supplements to see if they could identify what was in them based on the type of plant to see if they were they what was in there is what they were saying was in there. Um, And guess what? Not really. Uh, Walmart was at the bottom of the list. Only four percent. That's the number four. Followed by a percent. (laughs) Only 4% of Walmart samples had any evidence of the plant listed on the label. Oh, my God. That's not just disgusting. Like, I don't under... And here's what really annoys the crap out of me is that it's like, oh, geez, well, that's horrible. They're literally selling you a sugar pill uh, or a metaphorical sugar pill. And, And... Worst case scenario, you know what might happen? And this is how, like, like impotent our government is in some cases. 
It'll be like, Walmart was issued a $200,000 fine for mislabeling, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? It's like 0.1% of one hour's revenue for something like that. It's completely, it doesn't do anything to someone like them. So I'm curious to see what actually comes out of this. But uh, the other stores didn't fare quite as bad, but still really, really bad in the general scheme of things. Like the overall rate was 21%. So had what they said it was going to be in there. So 80% of the products had none of what they claimed in there. And they looked at a whole bunch of stuff like (laughs) the worthless uh, echinacea, uh, ginseng, John's wort, St. John's wort, ginkgo biloba. So they had a whole list of the most common ones they're looking at. And they just, there was nothing in there whatsoever. So, so yeah, it was all herbal supplements. It wasn't like multivitamins and, uh, the, from the list I saw it, it was plant-based or herbal supplements. Yeah. They were all plant-based. Just, uh, the ones I saw, they weren't like, like the fish oils and stuff. Although there, okay. there could have been, there could have been more on there. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they need to keep on looking. Yeah. It, and it, it's, yeah. it's just one way again, regardless of what you think about supplements that that's just completely wrong and and there it's it goes shows you the lack of oversight we have on the whole supplement industry uh, we've talked about this a little bit in the past but in 1994 there was the dietary supplement health and education act and what that did was it took the onus off of the government to regulate supplements uh, pre- prior to that, if you wanted to put a supplement on the market, it had to go through the FDA, and and it was a it was there was an appropriate level of oversight and control to make sure your supplement was doing what you were claiming it was going to do, and there was such a a, a demand from the public for supplements, and a barrage of of supplements being submitted to the FDA that they said this isn't working, and the compromise they made was that as long as your supplement did not claim to cure, diagnose, or treat any disease, it was fair game. You could you could put it on the shelf and say whatever you wanted. So those are the, key, the keys. Do not diagnose, treat, or cure. And um, they defined a dietary supplement as, it, other than tobacco, intended to supplement a diet that bears or contains one of the following dietary supplements or ingredients, a vitamin, a mineral, an herb, uh, or other botanical and amino acid, a dietary substance for use by man, blah, 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 blah. So it's, it's, it's more or less, um, uh, if you extract stuff from plants, that's the, that's the primary thing here, but you can have fish oils and other stuff like that. Cause I think that falls into those fatty acids and those amino acids. And I, I think that's where that goes into. So they just said, do whatever you want at this point, as long as you don't do it. And it completely opened the floodgates for charlatans and different scam artists. And the problem is that if it's not like the idea is if it's not hurting people and as long as it, you know, it's not, if it's long as they're not claiming it's curing disease, there's, there's nothing to stop them from doing anything that they want. And these companies often thrive on word of mouth claims from people uh, about the disease thing. And, and so they'll let the word of mouth go crazy and they won't correct it because we're like, we're not the ones saying it. And then, and then it, these things run away here. You know, like, do you guys remember that whole green coffee bean ac- extract thing? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. You know, raspberry ketones, all this. The, kind the of stuff. raspberry ketones, the green coffee extract, like coffee bean extract, and billions of dollars. Not only are people completely wasting their money, you know, with the green coffee bean extract, it was this magic weight loss pill, you know, as, you know, one of a million that's come out over the years. And it's completely, you know, uh, it's not against the law at all to say it helps you lose weight. As long as you don't say it's curing or treating obesity you can say you all you want that it helps you lose weight and by the way if you actually look closely at the you know quote-unquote data from these companies that 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 are saying that they're putting out peer-reviewed publications and all this sort of stuff and look at our scientific evidence from you know blinded tests and all this sort of stuff a generally it it's horrendously bad scientific um methodology but beyond that if you look real closely often it will say like uh, participant took X amount of pill for 12 weeks. Participant also reduced caloric intake by 1,200 calories a day and exercise <laughs> yeah. five days a week. Right. You know what I mean? And of course, that's right. not what they're saying. You know, like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you reduced your calories and you exercise and you took the pill and you lost weight. What? Fascinating, you know? So, right. It's all should be taken with a, a grain of salt here, you know? And the last thing mm-hmm. I'm, I'll say on this is, unless you guys have anything else to say, is that there is a lot of people say, well, who cares? It's not hurting anyone. And uh, although sometimes they do hurt people, but let's just say that they're innocuous. They're not doing anything. The, the greater problem is that when you have a placebo effect and people think that it's a real effect or 
people it's not even doing anything and yet the people think it's good the danger is that it leads to a confusion about a what real drugs are so that you begin to think that all that the it puts this divide saying that the mainstream medical community their drugs are no better than the natural stuff you get out there um, which in turn leads to people potentially not seeking medical help when they have real medical problems so that's great. You took the echinacea and vitamin C when you had a bad cold or flu, and for whatever reason, you think that you got better four days earlier than you would have. Now my brain says, all these the the, the mainstream medical in- industry sucks. Um, look at all this natural stuff. I mean, it, not only does it do better, but uh, but it's all natural, which of course we all know is <laughs> that doesn't make it any more safe. Um, right. And um, and now when I have a stage one uh, liver cancer, um, I'm gonna go to the the naturopath and get their medication and I'm gonna fix myself just like I did with the cold. And in four months, when now it's stage three liver cancer and I decided to go to the real doctor because the homeopath didn't do anything, I am going to die because it's too late. So that's to me the bigger problem here. And, and it, you, you kind of just, it's so easy to let people get their foot in the door with, oh, it's not hurting anyone, so it's fine. And the next thing you know, you have mm-hmm. this giant problem we have now, so. Right, I wish that the response to this was, you know, people realize that herbal supplements are <laughs> basically empty if you, well, and they should be looking at, at other places too, because I think that the misconception will be, oh, well, I shouldn't buy any supplements from Walmart or Target. Right. That will be the but conclusion. if I get it from my local herbalist. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the response should be like, okay, if I get a prescription for something and it's an actual drug and it's not classified as a supplement, it's regulated more strictly and it will have what it's supposed to in it. Like, I wish that it would be less a distrust in general of of pharmaceuticals and more of a distrust just of herbal supplements. Yeah, that's probably and not more reliance happen, on though. yeah. Well, I know. So, <laughs> it's wishful thinking. Like the thing with supplements for me is they a lot of them are they're real drugs. There's this misconception that because it's natural, uh, it's better for you. But if you were to take an extract of any plant, those complex chemicals are going in your body and they are doing something. And let's just say they there is a minor effect of a com- chemical from an extract of a plant that is going to be purified into a supplement here. Now, there's a very good chance you can take a plant extract. As a matter of fact, tons of the pharmaceuticals you take, the real pharmaceuticals you get from the pharmaceutical companies, they started out as plant extracts. And then there were billions of dollars gone into research to, to determine whether or not there was any real efficacy with that extract. But so you're just taking the plant extract in general uh, without the pharmacological studies behind it. And it let's say it, it, it helps as a vasodilatory, So it brings your blood pressure down a little bit. The problem is that these supplements now say, uh, don't take your crazy blood pressure medication from the doctor. This is going to decrease your blood pressure, and it's going to cure cancer, and it's going to do all these sort of things. Like they, it, it, they start getting these blanket descriptions that cover every disorder in the body, and whatever real effect the supplement may had, little real effect, is completely masked by all the BS from 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 what the drug company and what word of mouth is saying. So it's completely convoluted, and I don't think you can really trust what anyone's saying about these right now. That's why the pharmaceutical companies spend billions of dollars to figure out what they really are doing. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's my rant. I have no more. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? Uh, I can go next. Yay. Go. Okay. So probably unless you've been living under a rock, you know that there was a big measles outbreak here recently that started in Disneyland. And they have, um, I think it's the count is 102 people infected in 14 different states. And there's there's a bit of confusion surrounding this. There, I've I've had articles pop up on on Facebook all the time about um, how really this wasn't caused by people who refused to take the vaccine. It's just basically showing that the vaccine for measles is ineffective because people who've been vaccinated are catching it. And um, it's like 82% of the people who who caught measles from this outbreak um, were unvaccinated, but. 18% did have the vaccine, at least one dose. So a little bit of background. Measles is a very highly contagious infection caused by the measles virus. And uh, the measles virus that causes 
uh, measles nowadays is the same one that was causing measles in the early 1900s. So it's not a virus that's that mutates very often. Um, so that's kind of interesting. It's it's pretty much a rock solid virus compared to something like the influenza virus, for which you have a different vaccine coming out each year. Um, symptoms of the measles are fever, cough, runny nose, red eyes. These symptoms typically start uh, 10 to 12 days after you've been exposed to an infected person, and uh, two to three days after the fever and cough start. Um, you start to get white spots inside your mouth. Three to five days after the symptoms start, you start to get a flat red rash that starts on your face and spreads to the rest of your body. Um, most people survive the measles just fine, um, but it can lead to other complications. It can lead to um, diarrhea, blindness, inflammation of the brain, and pneumonia. So if you get the inflammation of the brain, there's a 15% um, mortality rate with that, and with the pneumonia, about a 28% mortality rate. Worldwide, um, these complications happen in about 30% of cases. In the U.S., it's a lot lower. And there's no specific treatment for measles. Typically, it's just you know, rehydration, um, healthy diet, rest. Um, most kids don't have to go to the hospital when they catch measles. They just have to, you know, stay home and be nourished. Um, but the, the the problem is with this is it's just kind of crazy that we have people getting the measles. Um, measles was considered completely eradicated from the U.S. back in 2000. Um, but more and more cases have been popping up, especially in um, affluent areas. Areas like California, um, Disneyland is kind of an interesting situation because it could partially be due to um, parents refusing to vaccinate their children in that area in Orange County, or it could be that somebody who had the measles came over from like the Philippines potentially, or from another country where um, measles vaccination rates are a lot lower. Yeah, LA is a bit of a honeypot. They were the initial. Like, yeah. Every culture on the planet kind of like, you know, mixes and combines there, you know. Exactly. So it's kind of hard to say why exactly it started. But the fact that it spread is definitely very, very frustrating. Because if, if enough people were vaccinated, it, it wouldn't have spread like that. Um, and so kind of coming back to this issue of like, why were so many people who had been vaccinated, why did so many people catch this virus? And so the reason for that is it's it's a very, very highly infectious virus. Like it'll stick around in a room for up to two hours after you sneeze or cough. So it hangs out there. And like, I, I like this example um, of like, if there, if there are a thousand people exposed to the measles virus, and let's say 900 of them were vaccinated and a hundred of them were not, um, the infection rate for unvaccinated people is about 90%. So you would expect 90 of the 100 who are not Jeez, vaccinated to catch huge. the virus. I know it's super, super contagious. And um, it, it, was, it was said to like wipe out two thirds of the population of Cuba back in the 1500s. It oh, used geez. to be much more lethal, but it does spread very easily. It actually, in yeah, the 1850s, the Native Americans, out oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, that it, it wiped out a fifth of Hawaii's population in the 1850s. Yeah. So the Native Americans aren't too fond of it either. Yes. Yeah. Oh no, um, that was smallpox, <laughs> not measles. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, oh but, but but small. <laughs> so so there was there was a huge outbreak of uh, smallpox actually in Cuba before the measles outbreak, Jeez. and people survived smallpox in Cuba, but then the measles got them. Jeez. Um, yeah. But anyway, okay. So so we have 90 of our 100 people who were not vaccinated catching measles. And then out of the 900 who um, were vaccinated, there's like a 97% effectiveness rate once you have your two doses of the measles vaccine. So you would expect 3% to still get the measles. And that would be 27 out of the 900. So that's basically 23% of, of the 117 who ended up with the disease were actually vaccinated, and that's pretty similar to the percentages we see in a real-life outbreak scenario. So that kind of explains why there were so many people who were vaccinated who got it, right. which makes a lot of sense since it's so contagious. Um, so with the, the measles vaccine, the, your first dose isn't recommended until you're 12 to 15 months old. Uh -huh. And the reason they don't vaccinate babies is babies get um, immunity transferred from the mom's placenta. And the breast since milk they, too. that 
yes, through breast milk as well. And so if you were to get the vaccine while you still have that that immunity from your from your mother, chances are the vaccine wouldn't take very well. So you want to get rid of that initial immunity and then get your first dose of vaccine. The second dose of vaccine is recommended like no less than 28 days after that. Typically, they recommend a second dose of measles vaccine at um, like four to six years old. Um, and the reason that they do two doses, it's not like the second one's a booster shot. It's actually the exact same vaccine the second time around. But in practice, they found that um, the first dose is effective in about 93% of cases. And usually it's a little bit less effective because sometimes there's a chance the doctor mis mishandled the vaccine. I guess if it's not kept cold enough, right. it's not very effective. So if it's kept in like a refrigerator door, oh, interesting. it could potentially be ineffective. Uh -huh. So they do the second dose basically as, as a blanket for the 7% the of people who it may not have worked for the first time. Which is interesting. Um, oh, no, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so you have all children under one who can't take it. Uh, of the ones who do get it at 12 months, 7% of it's not effective. And let's say you're not getting it again until age four to six. So we'll say six is a worst mm -hmm. case scenario. So you have all babies under one susceptible to measles. You have 7% of all children which are even more because a lot of them didn't get vaccinated to begin with. But we'll say, assuming right. they all got vaccinated, 7% of all children under the age of six who are highly susceptible to it as well. That's what it, it gets me so angry when people are like, well, it's my choice and it's my child's, you know, choice. And, and I'm not, you know, it's, it's not affecting you. And it's like, no, there are. And then if you mix in, there are quite a few children who are immunocompromised who who do not have strong enough immune systems to get any vaccine of this type here because it may actually cause damage. So you have all these people who know your poor decision from very shady science can and is now affecting millions, potentially millions of people who who have done nothing wrong. So it, to me, that's it's a completely specious argument. I'm, it annoys the heck out of me. Please. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting that there's that period of time where you're not supposed to get your second dose yet. Um, because yeah, you, you are a little bit more susceptible to it. And they actually say that you're supposed to get your second dose before you're 12 years old. And there's this window in between 12 and 18. If you haven't gotten your second dose yet, they don't recommend a second dose until after you're 18. But Another interesting thing is if you were born um, before 1956, they say you might as well not get the measles vaccine because chances are you've already had measles as a kid. Huh. So, well. uh, so if you're if you're under 59 years old and over 18 and you haven't gotten vaccinated for the measles, you probably should. Because <laughs> you you in essence have vaccinated yourself just through yeah. ex chronic exposure. <laughs> you, yeah. So you 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 only get it once typically during your lifetime. Right. So, um, good good chance you had it. Yeah. Yeah, Janet. So that's that. It's just well, uh, very frustrating. A lot of people still point to the autism or they, they say like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to wait for my kid to get enough muscle mass to handle the vaccine, I, which what? I don't. Uh -huh. <laughs> it sounds it sounds logical in theory, but what? Yeah, no, that's insane. <laughs> so what does it have to do with your muscle mass? And I, I'm not speaking to any parent who has a child who unfortunately got measles because I'm speaking in general generalities here. But in a way, from a global survival sense of human beings, I think it's good this is happening. Um, don't misquote me and say I'm happy people are getting measles. I'm not at all. Uh, it's, it's horrible. But it's it's I, I shouldn't say good. I feel that this is necessary. That's probably a much better way to say it. Uh, it's mm -hmm. necessary this is happening because it, until you see a child in, in measles, most children with measles get over it, but but there's measles encephalitis, which you can go from feeling fine and just having a normal case of the measles to being dead in 12 hours. And this does happen mm -hmm. a lot of the time here. It can kill a lot of children. And point being is that it's easy to say, I don't want that poison put into my child, even though it's not poison, it, be, when you've never seen the negative effects. It. If you've never seen a child with polio, if you've never seen a child with smallpox or measles or whooping cough, watching them not barely to be able to get a, a breath in because they have whooping cough, a miserable ex, a, a disease. If you've never seen it, then it's like, well, why do I need this invisible shot that may give my child autism? Because nothing's happening either way, so everything's fine. So you need these outbreaks to happen for parents to be like, huh, maybe that wasn't such a good idea, you know? Um, right, no, you're, you're absolutely right, because because people in, you know, the early 2000s, they didn't see any cases of the measles, so they didn't really know 
what it is or that it exists and they didn't realize that it could even be a risk. Even if there's a 1% chance of your, which there's not, but if there was a 1.1% chance of your child getting autism from it and you've never seen a case of measles, you're like, well, I'm just going to roll the dice here because 0.1% really sucks and um, and uh, I don't, there's a 0% of my child getting measles as far as I'm concerned. So why would I, why would I t- get, take, the, take the thing here? So. And I, and even, even if it were linked to autism, I mean, I would, well, uh, no, it's not. It's just not. I can't even. <laughs> I can't even not, go yeah. there. No, 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 I even feel bad for <laughs> even, even making an off the cuff <laughs> fake comment there because it's uh, no. There's yeah. zero zero yeah. percent. Yeah. So. So that's it. That's thank you for joining my rant there. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate yeah, that it. Really annoys the crap out of me. So. Yeah. Christian. So, yeah. Did you have more, Carolina? That's it. Okay. Bot flies. This is my this is my second installment of my parasite thing. And this is my favorite one so far because it's really, really, really gross. Um so imagine that you decided to take a trip to some sort of tropical South American or just South US. Um, region and you're hanging out you're maybe you're on the beach maybe you're just sitting around and a mosquito flies by let's let's be honest the mosquito doesn't bite you it could land say it lands on your arm and just hangs out for a second it doesn't bite you you swat it away and it flies away well a few days later you develop this sort of bumpish red zit looking thing on your arm and you're like huh the mosquito must have bit me no big deal so you go on your merry way and you know a few days later that becomes excruciatingly painful and gets really 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 big and looks horrifyingly disgusting so um you go to the doctor and the doctor says oh you have a little bug growing right inside your skin and your your yes your first thought is oh my god get it out get it out get it out get it out then the doctor says, well, if I just reach in there and pull it out, its body will break and flood you with toxins and cause fatal anaphylactic shock. I get to talk shock. about anaphylactic shock, too. So, okay. <laughs> so, so now we have this, this horrifying little, little pustule thing on your arm, and it's excruciatingly painful because inside is basically a maggot, literally a, a fly larva, that is crawling around eating your skin and has hooks on its body and i'm not kidding you if you go if you google this if you look up botfly pictures of the larvae they have visible hooks that are facing backwards so if you try to pull them out those hooks dig in and hold Mm. them in place and once again if you rip them or damage their body they can kill you so um, what is the way that you treat this horrible, nasty, disgusting, awesome thing? Um, the way you treat it is you, in general, you put a some sort of blockage over the little hole where it went into you, and that causes it to suffocate because they are. Don't they do that with ticks, like putting a little Vaseline on it or something? Yeah, with a tick, that's that just yeah. But the tick will not necessarily die. It'll just right. come off. Um, in this case, your goal is death <laughs> right. for this little thing. Um, they will, if you let them sit for a long period of time without treating it at all, it will eventually drop out of your skin because its goal is to get out of you and into an environment where it can basically um, turn into a fly. Do its little you know, larva change thing which for some reason I can't come up with the word right now that um, insects use to change from one form to another. Metamorphosis. There we go. Thank you. Yay. So they're going to drop out, become a fly, and fly away. Well, if you let them sit there for eight weeks, it will do that. And that is not necessarily recommended. You can get secondary infections. You can get all kinds of crazy stuff. But the, the neat thing about the the little fly larva itself is it's actually secreting antibiotics while it's in there. 
it doesn't want you to get an infection that would just like those bugs that bite you and they they put an anesthetic into the bite wound so that you don't know you're being sucked on they're like you don't want you to hurt because then you'll get rid of me (laughs) yeah the ticks do that Uh, some mosquitoes do that too to a lesser degree but you you usually can feel the initial bite but you figure you feel the initial mosquito bite and then you don't really feel anything and that's for the same reason the mosquito has sort of numbed the area around where it's feeding. But yeah, these little nasty things. So what they do is they um, they suffocate them and then they, they try to pull them out with tweezers. Um, the, if it's really bad, they have to go in and surgically cut these suckers out. And that I'm sure is the most painful thing I can possibly <laughs> imagine. But they... <laughs> I, I just love these little fly things. This is the reason that I won't go anywhere down south. <laughs> <laughs> but because they're the eggs, the life cycle of this particular it is a parasite. It's considered a human parasite. There are a large variety of these flies, different um, species and different genuses that parasitize mainly animals, mammals. Um, this particular one, the Dermatobia hominis which from hominis you can guess is for humans but they lay their eggs and their eggs get picked up by a mosquito or get picked up by a tick or whatever and the heat from your skin actually hatches the egg so when the mosquito flies by and lands on you the heat from your skin um hatches the egg then the then the little larvae drops onto you and does its little burrowing thing um it has actually some species have a little, almost like a rotor on their head, and they literally burrow into you. Just like, they just grind right through your skin layer, and mm. in they go, which is terrifying and awesome all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> they're not very big, full-grown. When you extract them, usually they're maybe 10, 15 millimeters okay. long. But if you think about that in your body, that's pretty big. You know, I mean, a that's mosquito half an inch, is what, 25 millimeters five? per inch. Yeah. That's, yeah. That, they, they start out small, but they don't, you know, they come out pretty, pretty gross. And it's awesome. One of the um, more recent medical ideas that they've had was they use a, a toxin syringe and they sort of poke it in there and suck the, the stuff out of the um the larvae so that it doesn't it can't excrete the proteins and things that cause the anaphylactic shock reaction so um that's sort of the new modern modern idea that they're uh venom extractor syringes i'm sorry that's what they're that's what they use that's i didn't know there were venom so yeah they just sort of yeah apparently there are yeah they just they're just there to um get into the wound and pull back some of the fluid so they just stick them in there and um suck out the the guts of the little guy super cool so yeah that's super awesome so that was my parasite segment for this week it it's not as molecular biology intense it's just really gross which i think is (laughs) awesome really gross we are totally going to post a link to this site with pictures yes because pictures are not only a thousand words but yeah you, you keep reminding me if you haven't yet we've talked about this a while back also youtube don't google youtube mango worms uh it is it is it is where nightmares are born i will say no more nice <laughs> same same vein as uh as your bot uh, but but really really gross so oh, gotcha. so next time you're craving something that's, <laughs> that's not very right. good for you <laughs> <laughs> i want some ben and jerry's mango worm Mm, mango mango ice cream mango worm (laughs) have you either of you seen the mango worm videos you you have to do Uh -uh. it no it's just it's so bad okay and there are lots of them um okay yeah last story cool i'll be brief uh this was sent to us by a listener and uh guest of the show a couple times uh aaron miller it's based on a pro or a paper called Administration of Probiotic with Peanut Oral Immunotherapy, a randomized trial, and it's in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology, which is a, a it's got a good, very good impact factor. I looked it up, and, and it's a highly regarded journal. So this is not a, this is not charlatan work here, as with the supplements. 
Um, Christian may not be happy though. And Christian, you're going to want some hardcore, um, uh, experimental results here. And unfortunately, um, I do not have, did not have access to the journal this morning. I, I did not have time. So I have to go with the summary, but, um, if you want to tear this apart at a later time, please do. So the idea was, is they started with 60 children that had peanut allergies, uh, ranging from mild to severe. And these were between the ages of one and 10. So these are children with peanut allergies and, um, every day for 18 months, 18 months. So this is a very long-term study. Half of the randomly assigned children, they took a probiotic dissolved in water with a peanut protein. Okay. So these are children who already had a peanut allergy. They were taking a probiotic, which is like what you'd get from an Activia. Basically, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a bacteria. Um, they took that with the peanut allergy and the other half took a placebo drink and ate a placebo powder that looked, smelled and tasted just like the treatment. This is double blinded. So neither the doctor, neither the physician or the, um, the, the parent or the child had any idea of what they were taking. So the kids in the peanut therapy group, um, they received 0.024 grams of peanut protein the first day. And then they gradually had their dose increase every two weeks over the next 18 months to build up the tolerances. So children already had some form of peanut allergy. They, uh, and they, they, by the way, this wasn't a self-reported peanut allergy. They actually did a skin wheel test on them and, uh, they all showed some sort of immunoreactive response to, to peanut allergy. And then they were over 18 months, their doses were ramped up, uh, with the co-administration of a, of a, uh, probiotic here. Okay. Um, so for the final 10 months of their study, the, the treatment included two grams of peanut protein in yogurt in the equivalent of 20. Oh, geez. So <laughs> I didn't read this part. The treatment included two grams of peanut protein in yogurt and the equivalent of 20 kilograms of yogurt. What does that mean? Really concentrated probiotics? That's the only thing I can imagine. 20 I guess so. kilograms? I think so. So this is really wow. purified <laughs> probiotic here. Uh, though the experiment, maybe they meant grams. That's that's insane amount. So anyways, a lot. Um so what happened, right? Um, they Okay, so over the 18 months, some of the children experienced adverse reactions such as wheezing and mild discomfort to anaphylactic episodes that needed to be treated with adrenaline. Uh, on, the other, uh, on the last day of the study, the team tested the children to see if their bodies could handle ingesting four grams of pure peanut protein by itself. And again, these are all children who already had a response to peanut on some level before the study even began. Four grams of real peanut protein. I'm guessing that's five or six peanuts, I'm guessing. I don't know. Um, neither the researchers nor the parents knew who had been taking the treatment or the placebo for the past 18 months. And 26 of the 29 children in the therapy group who ate the protein had zero reaction whatsoever to the peanut. So these are, yeah. So this was a wow. huge decrease in the uh, in the reaction to, to the peanuts. Three of the children had, or two of the 28 children had some uh, reaction. Um, and uh, I think one of them even had anaphylactic shock. So it wasn't didn't work for all of them, but this is a huge decrease. Twenty Going from 29 of 29 to 26 of 29, not having uh, an issue here. In the control group, uh, only two of the 28 children from the placebo group uh, did showed no reaction. So 26 from the actual uh, experimental group showed no reaction to the peanuts. Two of the 28 from the placebo group did. So, so that's some pretty strong... Uh, evidence, uh, all right, correlative evidence. Yes. I have a question. I have a question about the placebo group. Did you say that they were not getting anything, or were they getting the peanut protein and in the placebo doses? group? They were getting no peanut whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. Oh, see, because I know or that probiotic. a common therapy for people with peanut allergy is to gradually increase the amount of peanut protein you're taking. Uh, right. On. So you're saying it, basically it would to desensitize be, yourself without um, the probiotic. Uh, let me make sure I'm reading this right then. So. The other half took placebo drink and ate powder that looks. Yeah, I'm curious how the how the probiotic. Did they have a control group without the probiotic? Right, just with peanut protein and no probiotic. Right. So, yeah. Is it one of those things where they like you know did exercise and lost weight? <laughs> right, and right, right, right. Supplements. So. Um, <laughs> the other half took placebo drink and ate the placebo powder that looks, smelled, taste the treatment. We need like a, an inter intermittent music. Well, I have the abstract here. Um, maybe I'll edit this here, but let me look real quick. <laughs> no, you <laughs> I won't. Know. I don't edit anything. <laughs> I can say anything I want right now, <laughs> and it will stay. <laughs> um, 
So pull up the paper. Uh, Aaron Miller, share the link. Here, okay, here's the actual paper. It says method were performed in a double-blinded, placebo-controlled, randomized study of the trial probiotic L. Ramosuis, blah blah blah. Um, GMCC went an opinion of their The primary Yeah, I don't see this here. They have like a three sentence um, explanation of their methods here. I, I'll yeah. pull up the main paper, but I don't see. I'm looking up other articles online about this study to see if they say, but I don't see them. It says just placebo group. It doesn't specify whether the placebo group was receiving gradually increasing doses of yep. peanut protein. Um, okay. All right. Well, I think that's big enough that I will make a small cut there. <laughs> that's really long. Okay. So if you're just <laughs> if you're just hearing us laugh right now, uh, we spent two or three minutes uh, searching the Google machine and uh, was unable to determine if the placebo group got some sort of uh, peanut uh, uh, peanut dose without the probiotic. But uh, I'll come back and and say next week whether or not uh, that happened or not. So all I can say for sure is that. If you receive the placebo group, or excuse me, if you receive the, receive the probiotic and the peanut together in increasing doses over 18 months, 26 of those 29 children showed basically no response to the peanut allergy after that time. So if you if you want to know what an allergy is, it's, a, it's called the type 1 hypersensitivity. And there are several different types of hypersensitivities to certain uh, antigens, or these are things from the environment that come into you. This is a type one hypersensitivity. And, and what most people don't know is that uh, you, when you are exposed to whether uh, an antigen, whether it be a bee, poll, a, bee, a bee sting or pollen or peanuts, whatever the case may be, when you are first exposed to this, you actually don't have uh, an allergic response. That's not what happens. Your body needs to develop an allergic response to it. So let's say it's peanuts in this case. And um, you, you take peanuts into your system for whatever reason, whether it's environmental or genetic or whatever the case may be, your body says, I don't like what's in me. I think it's bad, even though it's not. Uh, it develops an immune response. And then your the peanuts clear out of your system. And it might be, I don't know, 11 months, 11 days, whatever the case may be, uh, you have peanuts again, and you may be like, well, I didn't have an issue with peanuts the first time I gave my one-year-old peanut butter, so I'm sure he's fine now. And then all of a sudden your child goes into anaphylactic shock and really bad things happen. Um, so, cause what happens is, is that after you developed an immune response, you have all of these antibodies floating around in your system. They're called IgE antibodies. And they they are continually in your system and because your body previously determined that the pollen or the bee sting or or the peanut is bad these are antibodies that their only job is to seek out in this case peanut protein and they float around doing absolutely nothing in your body until peanuts get into your bloodstream again at that point they immediately bind to the peanut protein those in term, that complex of the antibody and peanut protein bind to something called mast and basal cells here. And those excrete, uh, as soon as they bind, uh, those mast cells essentially vomit histamine all throughout your body. And imagine if you have every, in every vessel, every orifice in your body, you've got mast cells all over the place. They're all immediately start releasing histamine and uh and and really bad things happen the two primary things and if you go into anaphylactic shock this is what's going to kill you is it causes all your blood vessels to completely relax so your blood pressure plummets and it causes your the smooth muscles in your airway to contract so you can't breathe these are pretty much two horrible things <laughs> no blood pressure and you can't breathe and that's why you need an epipen an epipen um causes vasoconstriction and it's going to cause your your airway to to con, uh, to relax um so it's basically doing the opposite thing it's 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 activating your your sympathetic nervous system here so um 
that's that's what's happening here. And um, and if you that's why you take an antihistamine if you have a minor allergic reaction because what it's doing is it's binding to all this histamine that's being released by these mast cells and it's neutralizing them. And so so you don't have a uh, so you don't have so much of a, a problem here. And um, I will say don't confuse. Um, don't confuse this type one hypersensitivity, these allergies with, uh, with an autoimmune response. A lot of times people will do that in both cases with an autoimmune response and with antihistamines, your body has identified, um, something that is not inherently bad or harmful, whether it be bee pollen or whether it be the cartilage in your bones, it's, it's, it's identified something that is fine and it said it's bad. And that's on the one hand, you can get allergies if it's coming from the environment into your system. If it's part of your own body already, it's called an autoimmune disease. So if you have something like rheumatoid arthritis, it's because your body, just like with the bee pollen has decided, Hey, you know, the cartilage in your bones, uh, I don't think that's so hot. Um, I think this is probably pretty bad and I should attack it. And so you get inflammation in your, your, your thing. So that's an autoimmune disease versus a, an allergy. So it's, it's all just depending on where the, the antigen, the bad thing is coming from. So, um, okay. So I'm looking here, I'm comparing this to another study real quick. So, um, a 2011 study from Duke university medical center, um, basically looked at the same type of thing. They, they had 99 participants. Uh, 49 were randomly assigned to peanut immunotherapy treatment, which is just uh-huh. increasing peanut protein gradually. And the other 50 were placed in a control group, which received no okay. treatment, just placebo. Um, first phase of the trial lasting 26 weeks, researchers found that 84% of participants receiving the oral immunotherapy could tolerate a daily dose equivalent to about five peanuts. Um, let's see if it went on longer. Second phase, the control group participants received the immunotherapy intervention too, and 45 of them completed the treatment. The result here was that 54% of participants were able to eat the equivalent of 10 peanuts and 91% tolerated a daily intake equivalent to about five. Um, so if if what you're saying, if at the end of your, your 18-month study that you're talking about, they were able, uh, you said there were only 4%, I think it was, that were not uh, able to tolerate it? Well, so like one, well, one or so two kids. twenty six of the twenty nine, twenty six divided by twenty nine, ninety percent of the children were able to ninety percent. Okay, so so about the same percentage then. Oh, for interesting. Five so you're what I'm hearing is potentially just peanut exposure by itself is just as effective as the probiotic. It's it's totally go on an exercise regimen and take a well, supplement okay. and the supplement this, this, will make it I will officially I don't know for sure. I don't know. We're only looking at the I will officially of read the whole paper now because this is actually a very uh, well respected <laughs> journal. It's the number one allergy journal on the planet and um, it's like the number twenty immunology journal on the planet and there's millions of immunology journals. So um uh, yeah. I'm guessing there's more to it than just that. So I will dig in and get back to you guys here because it wouldn't make any sense if it's just, uh, if you know, yeah. I'm guessing it's acting as some sort of adjuvant where it, it increases the effectiveness of your immune system. That's what they're trying to claim. Uh, but let's, but I mean, even the percentage change with a, if you compare a hundred to 20, no 50, you no, know, no, no, you, 50. you're not talking about a, 50 in the control? This had 50. 20 in this the... had uh, 60. Oh, you're right. This right. This was 30, what basically was... 30 each. Okay. Well, versus 50 each. I mean, that's not, I mean, it's not the end of the world difference. But um, yeah. I wonder too if, if you become resensitized well, that, to the peanut protein. You asked the exact right like question. That's what I was about peanuts. to say is what they haven't determined yet. This is going to be, this uh, This experiment is continuing and it's going to be real longitudinal here. Um, they, they don't know yet if, if you will regress over time and, and develop the peanut allergy again, if you take away, in this case, they're using the probiotic. So, so wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be awesome if the cure for peanut allergy is to eat one peanut a day? Like yeah. the, the, the irony peanut that a day, keep the away. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, we have a show title. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> I actually already had the show title, which was supplement your knowledge of supplements, which is really bad. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yes, right. A peanut a day keeps the anaphyl axis away. Done and done. Thank you, Carolina. Okay. Um, I also have a joke for you. Oh, oh, I'm glad you said that. 
No, I don't have another joke this week. I thought I did. No, please. <laughs> um, okay, so I think we're pretty much there. That's all I have. Do you guys have anything else you want to add? No. Nope. Okay. Um, oh, God. I again. Yes, one. I have a brand new podcast Science. out this week. Poison the Poison Cast. cast. I, uh, this week it's on cyanide. Um, so you get a nice 30-minute description of what it's like to die of cyanide. The one-sentence description is it. you'll know what it's like to drown without a drop of water in sight because it is uh, drowning at a cellular level. And I don't mean your your lungs filling up with fluid. I mean literally all the oxygen in the world is available to you and you can't use any of it. So uh, go team. Yeah. Go to poisoncast.com or you can find it on iTunes too. It's just uh, search the poisoncast and it will it will come right up here. Speaking of which, you can also follow our show on Twitter. We are at Beta Sandwich and um, on the Facebook machine, Beta Sandwich Podcast. Anything else? I think that's it. Yep. What's our- so uh, I'll talk to you guys next week. And a uh, joke of the week is, do you guys know what happened to the bear that tried to swim from Antarctica to Florida? Mm. No. It dissolved. Do you know why? why? Because it was polar. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it was a polar bear. That's stretching. <laughs> Well, the worst part was I thought that at first I'm like, I thought that was the punchline. It dissolved. And I'm like, dissolved. I'm like trying to break that down, how that's like a funny part of the joke. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, that's... Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Woohoo! All right, guys. See you next week. week. Bye.